This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Grips. For comfort to durability, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone, so check out renthal.com. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we've got a very special show because it's new bike week for David Emmett. So finally, after what seems like endless years of podcast chat about David's new bike, now this doesn't even take into account all the, the chats that we have in WhatsApp groups about Dave's new bike, he's actually going to reveal on today's pod what he bought he might even reveal how much he paid for it. And uh, we've also got Neil Hodgson chatting about Dave finally getting a new bike as well. Hodgie might have been making a play for you, Dave, just to get insurance from him. Not 100% sure on that. <laughs> but he was very excited to hear that you'd finally bought a new bike. So, Dave, I'm going to kick off straight with you. Obviously, we've got Adam and Neil on the show as well, but no one cares about Adam and Neil. They want to know, Dave, what bike did you get? I, um, uh, to the disappointment of a great many people, I bought another BMW um, uh, RGS, um, uh, R1250 Adventure, which I promptly turned red because uh, all modern motorbikes are in boring colours. Uh, and especially BMW's uh, brand, I have to say. A lot of them are, uh, you know, it's all black. Oh, I have to say, Dave, I owe you an apology because uh, you first posted a picture of the bike on the group and, and you know, in our WhatsApp group. And I said I preferred the original colour of grey, which I later thought was a bit insensitive of me considering <laughs> that you just swapped it all out for red and, and knowing that uh, you and your lovely wife uh, like red motorcycles, which I'm still puzzled why you didn't buy a Multistrada in that case. But uh, I would have fallen over. It would have fallen over and broken all the plastics. That's why, basically. I mean, you know, uh, we have to factor in the fact that I am incredibly um, uh, clumsy old. and old. Yeah. And likely to fall over at any moment. So um, which is why I went for the GS, because it's got sort of the external Zimmer frame for me to fall over onto. Dave, you're not going to ever put a, a, a lock on the front wheel again, are you? <laughs> Got two not, locks. not in this brand new bike. I've got two locks on the front wheel at the moment. In fact, it's got four locks and alarm on. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's quite well protected. What a surprise the man named the Grey Fox uh, prefers a deeper shade <laughs> of grey for his motorcycles. He's the Silver Fox, and don't you forget it. <laughs> yeah, show some respect, please. I, I, you know, like Dave's, I mean, what is it with modern motorcycles and they need to be quite is it bland maybe there's that the word in the in the modern color i mean you've obviously been scouting around dave and yeah uh you didn't really find anything that was particularly satisfactory so you've had to you bought a brand new motorcycle which i guess cost a better part of or at least fifteen thousand euros and then decided to change bits of it uh, yeah because i i mean like you you could change the color of a motorcycle quite easily but you can't change the character and the and what it has to do because like i mean uh i have one vehicle uh, well apart from bicycles um, I have one vehicle. I don't have a car. I don't have multiple motorbikes. There's nowhere I can put multiple motorbikes. So I have one motorbike which has to do sort of everything. It's got to take me and my wife to races. It's got to take me uh, on my own to races. It's got to, you know, keep me entertained if I go for a little ride to um, uh, sort of empty, uh, empty the old uh, brain box. Um, it's got to take, you know, like I would... Uh, Taking bits and pieces to the uh, to the dealers when I was trading it in, um, you know, it was carrying. I was taking great big sort of cardboard boxes on the back uh, uh, a couple of times just to get bits and pieces there. So, you know, this is this is it's also my transport. So, like the bike was really important, um, and you can always change the color of a bike, but it just seems to come in fashions because I, I seem to remember. I mean, you know, I was riding in the nineties when everyone was going all garish. Uh, 
purple and uh, lime green and uh, shocking pink and all the rest of it. Um, so these things, uh, you know, c- colours come and go. I have to admit, Dave, that seeing some of the uh, the photos of your bike gave me new bike envy. I was um, then <laughs> looking at the MT10, and uh, you know, I'm a bit of a fanboy of Tron, the original one, oh, the yeah. crappy remake, and uh, seeing the black and the blue trim, uh, which you say is teal, which I thought was a bit harsh. You know, it's it's a bit more towards a cool blue rather than a teal. Uh, I was thinking. The, wa- the wallet was getting a little bit itchy, but then it's quite close to Christmas, so it would be um, a source of uh, trouble in my household if I suddenly went to a, a Yamaha dealership. What if you bought everyone a, a, an MT10? <laughs> <laughs> a mini one or a key ring. That's not a bad idea, actually. You've worked hard, Ad. You deserve it. Be nice to yourself. That's the key to happiness, isn't it? Dave, how does it, uh, how does it ride? You've uh, obviously had a few runs out in it. Like, is it uh, all that you expected it to be? It is actually. It was. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, obviously, it's a new bike and not a twelve-year-old bike, and so everything's a lot, uh, a lot smoother. But um, it, ha- yeah, I mean, it handles really well. It's one of the reasons to, to buy a GS. You know, they are, uh, you know, the big heavy bikes. But as soon as you get moving, they don't feel like big heavy bikes. Uh, it's uh, quick, nimble, stable, um, and just comfortable it's just really really comfortable and uh, it's got lots and lots of toys which are also fun now dave obviously enough you're going to make a few more changes to the bike is there anything specific from the rental range that you're going to be keeping an eye on i uh, do you know what i would i would actually quite like um some red handlebars on it to go with the rest of the red um thing but i've uh uh, I have been sort of browsing the uh, the, the Renthal website, trying to figure out if um, uh, if the bars were if I can get any of their bars to fit. So uh, uh, it's, uh, but yeah, I mean, my bank account is now sort of uh, in registering zero, and so uh, I'll have to be saving up over the next uh, the, the next few weeks before I start sort of putting more uh, more money into it. Well, with that in mind, uh, if anyone wants to check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast, we're going to have a lot of off-season content all the way through until the Qatar Grand Prix at the start of the 2022 season. So check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. And obviously enough, uh, you're not uh, you're not actually going to look to make a change for your bike anytime soon. But you've actually been pretty busy over the course of the, the 2021 season. You were doing quite a bit of, of road testing and checking out a lot of different bikes. Well, yeah, I mean, because of the pandemic, Steve, and the lockdown, I was in the uh, strange position earlier in the year of being uh, one of the few kind of British journalists in Spain that could do a few launches. Um, So I ended up riding Yamaha's Tracer uh, GT and and just the normal 9 version, which was a fantastic motorcycle, I have to say, as well as the MT-09. It was on my list, but um, it lost out. Did you actually try it though, Dave? I didn't try it, but I did did take a long look at it. Um, It it had a chain and also it didn't have a a nice flashy uh, TFT display. It was the TFT display which really uh, sort of uh, won it for me because my eyes are getting worse. And uh, all those sort of Fuck, you're going to need three pairs of glasses in the media center. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's right. That's right. 
Yes, it was uh, the the Tracer was actually more. Uh, I don't want to use the word fun, but it was actually more pleasant to ride than the MT. Uh, mm. So it was um, it was good going on those two Yamaha launches. I also went on the KTM Super Adventure launch as well in Gran Canaria, and that was a fantastic motorcycle. So um, that was also one, I guess, that was a rival for the BMW. But uh, could I actually just break some news here on the podcast? And I don't want to land him in it. Uh, maybe I'm out of uh, position, or it's not really my place to say. But the last time I had some lunch with Neil, he was talking about getting his bike license now does anybody listen to the podcast that likes to you know give driving or riding courses then i'm sure we have um a fantastic recipient that would uh, give some press coverage and some information as to how to get your very first motorcycle license and uh the thought of seeing neil morrison zipping up the road on one wheel on like a ktm duke 390 is something that you know i might even have to increase my patreon um you know fee to to, to manage it I'm not sure that the world is ready for that much cool, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, big Neil on a on a on a on a big motorcycle, yeah. But I mean, I have been riding motorbikes for the, over 40 years, so uh, um, and I can assure you, it is a great deal of fun. Might have to lock up your kids out, not let them out in the streets of Barcelona. <laughs> otherwise, there might be a bit of uh, imminent traffic danger coming their way. <laughs> I have to say, Steve, your question originally was about, um, you know, uh, 2021 being a bit of a, a different year. And obviously it was crazy with the, the way the racing season's finished. But um, it's now weird because my inbox is starting to fill up with uh, press releases from teams getting ready for Supercross. Uh, you know, Dakar is close as well. And, you know, I think um, there was a actually today the day we're recording was uh, the email Christmas card greeting from Dorna saying that 2022 is just around the corner. Um, and with Formula One just wrapping up, are we allowed to mention Formula One on this podcast? Uh, you know, it just feels like racing is just finished and is just about to start again. So it's it's going to be a very weird winter. Obviously enough, Ad, you mentioned there about uh, your inbox filling up and uh, lots of stuff coming in for Supercross. There was a bit of news as well about new electric motocross bikes. Yeah, there's a new company just outside Barcelona called Stark Future. Um, and they've set up, they've actually gone around headhunting quite a few of the sort of young designers who have worked on for other OEMs in the area. And they created a brand new electric bike called a Stark Varg. Stark means strong in Swedish and the Varg means wolf. Um, I've actually done a couple of interviews and, and worked with a company when they've been, you know, building this project from the ground up. And I have to say that the owners, uh, the people invested in, in, in the project, and we know Ben Cobb, of course, who was, uh, you know, for some years, I think five years was the world superbike communications manager. Uh, he's heading up the, the press and comm side of it. So we know people that are there and, you know, they're incredibly serious, really ambitious. And to be honest, it looks like a fantastic product. I know they've had um, ex-motocross world champion Sebastian Tortelli riding it. Um, also Josh Hill, a former AMA Supercross main event winner. It's, um, it's, it's looking really impressive, actually. And, you know, with 80 horsepower uh, and the ability to program it to be either a 125 two-stroke to a 654 stroke, I mean, that power curve is you can manipulate in any sort of way, then... It shows the possibilities of electric bikes. And, uh, you know, while some people might recoil at the fact that it makes no sound at all, uh, there are obvious advantages to it. And it's, it's, it's coming, whether you like it or not. Um, it, it does look absolutely fantastic. Uh, it really does look very nice. Um, but the, the interesting thing in here in Holland is a, a lot of motocross tracks have been closed down because of noise uh, noise issues. Uh, so to me, it's like a total no-brainer that, that motocross becomes one of the first sports to, be, uh, uh, to go fully electric because it's going to allow people to keep on riding 
uh, and keep training um, at any time because the, the, it, it reduces the biggest source of uh, sort of annoyance for other uh, for for people living around. So yeah, I mean, uh, I really think uh, I'm quite surprised that there hasn't been more pressure from national federations. Uh, to stimulate sort of electric motocross, really, because it, it it just seems like it's it's such a no brainer. Yeah, I think that's one of the big things, Dave. Because when you look at whether it's motocross, even there's a carton track down the road from me, and all these places are having a lot of issues with you know houses being built around them and having to slow things down. There's actually there is an indoor electric motocross facility. I don't know if you call it a track. I, like it's it's basically you go in there, you rent. For the night and it's used for stag parties it's used for you know in a traditional sense office christmas parties and all that and they're really popular because it just means that people are able to jump onto a bike and actually give it a bit of a go without needing to know all the ins and outs of how to ride you know so i think it's quite cool that you can now have something like that and i think it's really cool as well lad, that you're able to have it where you can tune it down and then as you gain your confidence you can get it faster and faster because i know for me like whenever i had my last bike it was only a little 250 and it was because anything bigger than that i didn't really fancy and then you would have been able to progress it nice and easy rather than having to just go out and buy something completely new yeah but again like one of the most interesting things about electric bikes is the fact that you can sort of you know manipulate your power curve you can you can have any torque curve you want you could turn it into uh, sort of the equivalent of a uh, of a 500 gp bike sort of thing um by giving it are a really, you a really fucking lunatic you, you, you are the but, but, yeah, but people could do that i mean because i remember I, I rode a 350 lc and uh, and i had a 350 ypvs a yamaha two-stroke and the YPVS had a because uh, it had the power valve it had the, the, the power delivery was a little bit more um, well, it was not quite as harsh but I remember riding the, the LC I was almost almost disappointed riding the uh, the YPVS because the LC when I first rode it uh, sort of I, I rode off opened the throttle and it hit the power band and the front wheel started coming up I was thinking oh god look I can um, uh, I can wheelie this because I couldn't wheelie anything to save my life uh, but yeah the, 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 so you could actually recreate that in an electric bike you can actually sort of change the character of the bike you can tame it down to make it nice and easy uh, or you can um, you can radically re reshape it and make it really really powerful if you want something more more uh, sort of challenging yeah i think it's uh, I, I mean some people say you know making electric bikes will bring the sport into inner cities and increase the popularity i, st I mean it's still an extreme activity i mean to, to puddle around like an off-road track on a dirt bike is still pretty perilous i mean you know you can fall off and break something even at walking speed so i don't think it's going to be it's, it's not going to see the industry boom in that kind of way but um it will make uh, tracks or the creation of tracks or the maintenance of tracks a little bit easier um, and of course, there's all sorts of, um, you know, issues around uh, ecology, environment, whatever else. And these Stark Future, this company seem to be very determined with their sustainability project. Um, and the bike is just very trick. I mean, there's some great ideas on it. They have their own proprietary technology for the battery, uh, the way the chassis is built, the way the whole thing is cooled, because that's one of the big issues, of course, of electric motorcycles is just how the, you know, the durability of the battery as well as the motor overall is, is sustained because of the, you know, the heat that's generated. So they have some very cool stuff and you know um on kind of the cyclo side uh, to use a spanish phrase um the chassis is is something that's out of this world it's incredibly light um it's unlike anything else
else. And um, it was a big announcement today. And I, I do wonder if, uh, you know, like the outer that we saw a couple of years ago that then went out of business, was bought by Harley Davidson um, and then eventually vanished just to mainly because those guys knew how to build a motorbike, but didn't really know how to, you know, uh, build a business. Um, that's the simplistic version I've been told anyway. Uh, you know, I think you know, there's, there's great potential in this one. Just out of curiosity, I'd like, especially for a motocross bike, do you think is it even more useful? Because obviously enough, if you're looking at road bikes and road cars that are all electric, your biggest issue is always range and being able to make it last for long enough. Whereas if you're out on a, on a motocross bike, you want to do a 15-minute moto, it's a lot easier to have enough charge for that. Yeah, I mean, the stock bike, they say, can do a full kind of Grand Prix moto, which is 30, 35 minutes, or it can do up to five hours of easy trail riding, um, you know, just off-road, pottering around. Um, but it's a good question about durability, Stephen, to pull this podcast back onto MotoGP for a moment. That's why I think a lot of people will be very interested to see what Ducati come up with for Moto E, um, you know, in the very near future. And they've got a big challenge ahead of them to to meet those performance targets. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the one of the things which I liked about the Stark is it did, when I first saw it is it doesn't look like an electric bike. I think that's going to be an important. Uh, uh, an important part of it and and again yeah i think it is more electric bikes are more suited to uh in a way they're really suited to racing and they're really suited to motocross uh because for i mean unless you are jeffrey hurlings uh you are not going to outlast the bike uh you know like basically a 15 minute moto will absolutely kill you you know if you ride a, mo a, a motocross bike hard enough i've only done a little bit of light off-roading but i know that sort of like after half an hour or an hour you are uh it, it, you're you're ready for a rest you're ready to have a uh, to have a good light uh, a good lie down it's um it's so much more physically and mentally demanding that um yeah it, it's not like doing i don't know six seven eight hundred kilometers in a day uh riding from from one place to another obviously enough uh, i mentioned we've got neil hudson on the show today as well and the reason that we wanted to get hodgy on was that uh he works across a lot of different championships. We're getting to the end of 2021. We're moving into now our review stage of the season. And uh, I think, David, it was quite interesting to hear from Haji because he obviously works in MotoGP with BT as a, as a commentator. And then he works in World Superbikes as a, as a rider manager. And he was able to give a lot of good info across both championships. Yeah, once we got past all the bloody golf talk, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he is a little bit obsessed with golf at the minute i have to say yeah uh, but it, it was interesting i mean it, it, it's interesting because it, it you know uh like staying active he was talking about track doing track days as well and staying active is really really important for uh for riders because as he says you know you're retiring you're retiring in your mid-30s even valentina rossi uh, valentina rossi uh, retiring at age 42 um 42 is incredibly young uh, speaking as a 57 year old um uh like i i am nowhere near retiring uh, you've got a whole life you know he's got at least 40 years ahead of him that he's got to fill um and so yeah it was it was interesting hearing also about how if you said he, four or 40 years there <laughs> i did say, do you think rossi's only going to live to 46 <laughs> and it's just going to be one of those things that we think god he should have chosen a different race number uh yeah well uh, uh yes i had a i had a friend who was obsessed with the fact that lots and lots of rock stars had died at 27 and he was convinced that he was going to die when he uh, when he reached 27 um uh he's older than me and uh, still alive so uh, <laughs> was that john by any chance no it wasn't no no this is this uh, is this is, this is john's the funniest else. man in the world i don't i don't really know why you're friends with him dave well <laughs> 
I know why you're friends with him. I don't know why he's friends with you. Uh, yeah, he just uh, uh, he doesn't know any better. I, it must be the money I keep sending him. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean that that competitiveness. Uh, these athletes are so competitive; they always need to to have like an uh, uh, an outlet for that competitiveness. And you know, playing golf can help with that. Anyway, moving swiftly on from golf, I have to say, you know. <laughs> the, um, the way Hodgie's uh, progressed as a broadcaster. I mean, it's been, I mean, I'm not sure how many years now he's been doing. Is it four or five years, BT Sport? Um, oh, a lot more than that. It's 2014, I think, was their first year. Oh, right. Okay. No apologies, Neil, for not getting that right. But uh, it was, you know, I mean, I can remember his first Grand Prix. I mean, as you would expect, you know, from quite a sizable production with a big uh, investment in resources and budget, um, you know, it was pretty daunting. Uh, you know, I remember him running down the end of Qatar. I think Cal Crutchlow's um, uh, motorcycle had expired. And it's a brave man, I think, to wander up to Cal Crutchlow when his helmet's uh, visor's still down and say, uh, kind of, what happened, Cal? Uh, so, and, you know, from, from those kind of difficult beginnings, I think he's become a very sort of articulate, um, a great site of him, a great source of insight for the sport. And also, he's not afraid to give an opinion. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than really having a pundit that kind of just sits on the fence. Um, of course, we don't really like all the cynical observers sometimes, but um, you know it's uh, you know full, full credit to him. It's, so it's, it's it's a pleasure to see Neil uh, on on the broadcast. Obviously enough as well for Hadji, one of the things that was interesting for all of us in the paddock at the time was to see an ex rider, a world champion, come in. And it's very easy at the start of being in that role where you just talk to people you know. You just rely on everything that you were able to build on over a twenty year career as a rider. And Dave. Of all the TV people that we've seen come into the paddock over the you know ten years, uh, Hodgie's probably been the one that we saw come in and instantly try and make as much of an effort as possible to be a journalist. He was very adamant that he didn't want to just be an ex writer. He wanted to be able to to basically approach the job like a journalist. Yeah, exactly. He isn't a he isn't an ex writer who's a TV presenter. He's a journalist who just happens to be uh, an ex-rider and former world champion um i mean what i've been really really most impressed with uh, neil morrison and i think also this is also uh, true of michael laverty they're neil, they both Hodson, you haven't been impressed by me dave ever <laughs> <laughs> i was sorry. impressed that neil managed to bite his tongue for a full five seconds there sorry yeah neil hodgson and uh, of course i'm impressed with neil morrison what a, what a what a magnificent young man he is but anyway neil hodgson what's impressed me most about neil hodgson same with michael laverty is um they uh, they approached it the way that they approached their racing, methodically, hard work, um, open to learning, always trying to learn more, never thinking, oh, I know this, you know, I've done this, I know this, this is easy, uh, all I need to do is sort of talk about stuff. They were uh, approached it with a really open mind, trying to figure stuff out, try to learn, uh, always listen. Like, you know, I've had a few uh, decent chats with with, with um, uh, Hodgie as well, and he's uh, he's a very, very interesting person to talk to uh, because he, he listens – he listens to what you're trying to say, and he'll share what he knows. Um, and you know, he doesn't come with preconceived ideas. He's always, you know, trying to learn more and learn more and learn more. And I think that's what really comes across in in the broadcast stuff that I've seen him do. Yeah, I have to say, like, um, you know, just to go back to golf, just to annoy you add a little bit. Um, after Portimao, before Valencia, played a couple of days down in Portugal with him, and just chatting to Hodgie for those couple of days you pick up so much as well. Like he's got an awful lot of knowledge to try and get across. And uh, I was really keen at Motorcycle Live this week to be able to 
have a quick chat with him and a quick chat quickly became a much longer chat and uh, we're going to finish today's Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street and uh, Fly Racing with the interview with Hodgie and uh, we'll take a quick ad break and then when we come back we'll cut straight into the interview with Hodgie so hope everyone enjoys that. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit handlebar comparison tool at renthal.com to find the perfect bend. With Neil Hodgson, Neil, I don't know what to call you. Are you an insurance man? Are you a commentator? Are you a pundit? Are you an ex-racer, a world champion? I'm, I'm confused. I always have been, aren't yeah. I? You're always I'll confused. I'll tell you what you can call me. You can call me Neil Hodgson Golf Pro. Well, we, we, I, we've been talking. You've you got to be optimistic. <laughs> we've been talking off camera, haven't we, Steve, for well, an hour about golf. I'm obsessed, aren't I? Well, and I so are you. I tell you what, the one thing that I find probably the most impressive thing is we actually managed to find someone that plays more golf than me. Yeah. So it makes my addiction seem perfectly acceptable. I'm like an alcoholic that looks in the pub and sees someone else and you're thinking, okay. oh, he's a mess. He's, he's got it bad. He, he's got issues. It's weird. I, I, I literally, I played golf a little bit when I was younger and then never really got into it. And then this year I played with the Lowe's Twins and we had such a good laugh around about July time. And there was like an instant addiction. And from that point on, I have been hitting golf balls and I've improved. I'm actually not bad now. I reckon I'm off about 18, which is all right. Well, I'll tell you what, let's start with the golf part because obviously okay. you're Alex Lowe's manager as well. Yes. Look at the Lowe's boys and both of them say that golf is actually really important for them to be able to get the most out of themselves in racing as well. There's a lot of transfer and skills that you need from the course to put onto the racetrack. Yeah, in, which sounds, if you're listening and you're not really into golf, you'd be like, that sounds a bit like bullshit, as in... What what playing like playing around the golf? What, how was that ever going to translate over to being a professional motorcycle racer? But it's dealing with disappointment because uh, both Sam and Alex play really well. They're single figures um, golfers, but when you're having a good round and then all of a sudden you hit a couple of bad shots, it can affect your whole round. And it's it's understanding how to you 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 recognise that feeling of hang on, my head's going a bit here. I'm losing a bit of concentration. So both of them work really hard on that, that side of it with golf and it, it definitely translates over and I think it makes you a better bike racer. I know a lot of people will think that sounds like, like say, BS, but I believe it. Obviously for you as well, Haji, like you look at this year, you've obviously working in MotoGP every week, Alex's manager in Superbikes, so you keep abreast of both championships. Mm. This has been a ridiculous a season. Unreal, isn't it? Like literally. Starting with World Superbikes, I mean, obviously I've, I've always got a love for World Superbikes. <laughs> Having been a bit of a superbike rider back in the day, um, a bit of a superbike rider. Uh, no, you know what I mean. Your, your you know championship I mean. bike sitting here actually in front right, of you, us. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. But um, uh, I have been so bored of superbikes over the, over the past few years, and I'm good friends with Jonathan Ray, and I'm not blaming Jonathan Ray, but it's just I don't know. It like, seems to have lost a bit of a spark, and oh, like, like everybody knows, and I know you obviously you're a superbike through and through. And I'm just pleased for everybody because I know how hard everyone's working behind the scenes with the organizers and the teams. And I'm just so pleased that it's got what it deserves. And it's a, a, a star has been born in, uh, in Top Rack. He's so entertaining. There's not many riders I watch or have watched throughout my lifetime that I genuinely don't know how they do something. Usually, even the, some of the, the best, even Valentino Rossi, I could watch him. I know what he's doing. I know how he's doing it. He can do it 
he could always do it much better than I could, but I understand it. I watch Top Rack and I don't understand how he can do it. I don't understand how he doesn't face plant. He, he should lose the front much more. When you've got the back wheel off the ground with lean angle, the fact that the back wheel's off the ground, there's no contact, so it's not pulling you back. It's overloading the front. Surely the front will tuck, but it doesn't. And how he does that, like I say, I, I can't answer those questions, but what a year it's been. Sorry, you know me, I talk team much, I'm a rambler. Well, well, it's all right. You're the guest on this show, so. <laughs> but you look at Top Rack. I always think the same thing about Top Rack as I thought about Marquez whenever he came onto a MotoGP bike in 2013. Top Rack has that one area where he's just different to everyone else. But all the other areas, he's a complete animal as well. You look at the race craft he has, you look at his ability to overtake, clean overtakes as well, even though some can be right on the limit. But like with Mark, you never really see him make a mistake and have contact with anyone. It's it's special to see that battle between Ray and Top Rack through this year yeah. because neither of them was given an inch at any stage. No, and Scott Redding as well, obviously, on, on some of the weekends, uh, rode, rode fantastic and was in that battle. There were times, I've got to say, when I'm sat at home watching the races, sat in my bed thinking, bloody hell, that's a... Sat in your bed? Races are only like three o'clock in the afternoon. Exactly. No, that's where that's my little place. I go to watch TV upstairs on the bed. You know, when you can just like, you want a little space. Um, and Top Rack could pull some moves and I'd be like, I would not have been happy with that. There, are, there has been a few. My theory is a little bit when you're making a pass, if, that, if the rider you're passing has to lift violently, then really if that rider doesn't quite see at the right time there is contact it is a crash it's usually the rider on the outside that goes down so he's top rack is on the line and there are a few times in my opinion that he has he's gone over it that said i still respect him massively and and let's say nine times out of ten the passes are clean but there's a few where he goes over Top Rack's a bit like Johnny as well though when you look at them on the bike Johnny's always been very upright looks like he's out in a motocross bike all the time so he's got an awful lot more adaptability to be able to move his weight around Top Rack's got those huge levers so he's got that bit of adaptability as well and I think that was one of the things we saw through this year whenever they had those wheel to wheel battles bar to bar that both of them had that little bit of margin whereas when you look at some of the other riders they don't have that margin yeah yeah yeah, I'd agree with you on that. Well, I think the the best part of the battles were the fact that it's rare, I think, you get two riders that want it equally as bad as each other. Like, through Marcus's dominance, for example, he had so psychologically destroyed everybody that you sort of knew you couldn't beat him. And on the odd times that Marquez was beaten, it'd be by Davizioso, who was clearly on a better motorcycle, on a track where he clearly had an advantage, and he rode let's say to his limit and, and was, it was able to beat Marquez. Apart from that, you couldn't really beat him. The beauty of the battle between Johnny and Top Rack was you got Top Rack on a bike that turned really well and had some speed. You got Jonathan Ray, a six times world champion who's made out of titanium. I mean, he's that solid. Racecraft, any conditions. And he, he, Top Rack pushed Jonathan to the absolute limit. I've never seen Johnny ride so hard. And what he got out of that Kawasaki was phenomenal. How many times did Jonathan nearly crash? You know, there were so many occasions where, in the same race where Johnny lost the front so many times. So it was really entertaining. This was a season as well where we saw Toprak have to take that fight to Johnny at his best. You know, the Kawasaki was at a bit of a disadvantage and we saw that Johnny had to ride on that limit all the way. This was different to when you won your championship or when you looked down all the different times in Superbikes whenever you've had those top riders, Foggy got injured, Bayless and Edwards left. 
you know, course or hag or whatever you want to look at, all of those times there was always a little bit of a vacuum. This is one time where we've got that real change in the guard moment. Yeah, well, two, you've still got two riders at their absolute best. It's not because one of them, you can't say, well, do you know what? Johnny's not quite as good as he was. Johnny's every bit. That's the best I've ever seen Jonathan ride a motorcycle this year. And Top Rack's, like we've just said, a phenomenal talent. You look back at... You, the last championship, I know it's been said loads of times, was the 2002 championship where you got two riders that were the absolute top of the game, Bayliss and Edwards, on the same tyre manufacturer, Michelin's at the time, on different brands of motorcycles that, that would rather die than lose a championship. That was the last year that I can really remember. You'll probably be able to name another one. Well, the thing with it is, like, I looked at it the whole way through this year and thought we were in something historic because you could make the comparison to 2002 but the good thing was you were making a comparison to that championship season, but not the actual season. Because that season, the racing wasn't great. You had it where... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Bayless won the first half of the season, yeah, Edward yeah, wins the true. second. Yeah, yeah, that's this true. year, you didn't know which way it was going to go at any yeah. stage. And I thought that was what was great about it. And it was a little bit different to MotoGP. You know, we're used to the last five, six, seven years of MotoGP being this absolute fight at the front. And it wasn't like that this year. There was yeah. inevitability for Quattro to win the championship yeah, yeah, in a true. lot of ways. And the inconsistencies in MotoGP makes it exciting mm. because you can win any given weekend. But Fabio was the only guy that could keep it at the front all yeah. the way through. Yeah, that's why it was disappointing. It has been disappointing with Marquez's injury. Because wh why I love Marquez is on weekends when he's on the bikes, definitely not the bike to be on, probably the, the worst bike to be on, Marquez never knows when he's beaten so he's going to produce a story even if he's not qualified well it's like well you can't rule Marquez out of this weekend well obviously this year you, you due to his injuries he weren't the same Mark Marquez obviously he won the three races and then uh, again very unfortunately is sustained this eye injury again which I don't know what's happening with that I don't know if you've heard anything else but I don't, you know what I mean I mean it's, it's clearly a, a, a major issue so it was, it was one of those ones as well that for me the moment of the season was Mark crashing in Le Mans because we saw on the entry to pit lane he makes the move dives down the inside you see that he's still got that old Marquez killer instinct he's out in front wet track all the things that should line up nicely for Marquez and then he crashes yeah. you know and it was one of those times when you're looking at it and saying you know this is the change for Mark yeah. and then obviously he comes back he wins three races and I thought the Aragon battle with Peko all these yeah. kind of things showed that he's still Mark oh, yeah. but it also showed that he's not the Mark that we're used no. to seeing he, he always would have won those bar-to-bar -bar battles in the past. Yeah, and I've, I've said that in commentary that I genuinely believe that we'll never see the same Mark Marquez. The level that he went out at the top in 2019, it, he was so dominant, so talented, and everything still worked 100%, as in both shoulders and, you know, no injuries. The man we are seeing, obviously, is, I don't think he, he could ever reach that level. The, the, obviously, the big question is with the eye injury, will he ever, I don't know what's going on, will he ever be able to race at the, you know, at the top level again it's such a worry isn't it it's one of those ones and again it's something you can relate to from your own career most riders are retired rather than retire mm. the decisions made for yeah, them yeah. the body can't handle it anymore Mark's style was always going to lead to that. an injury at some stage and like I kind of look at it the same way as you do about Mark where five maybe six times a year he's going to be Mark Marquez and then the rest of the time, he's just going to be one of the top MotoGP yeah. riders in the world. And that's not what we're used to seeing from Mark. No, no, it's, it's, it's for me, it, I find it so disappointing because uh, obviously you never want to see anyone get injured. And uh, he's been my, 
I don't mind saying this. Obviously, it's, you, you get criticised on social media. You know what it's like. You can't say you really like someone, but I just, I've always loved watching Marquez because like I would love watching Top Rack. Yeah. You know, I just love that. How did they do that? I can't understand how, I don't know how someone can crash so big with Marquez so many times and not just think, oh, I don't want to hurt myself again. Let's just build back up, up to it. He's never been able to do that because he wants to win more than anyone. It's one of those ones that I remember whenever I was, I was younger and I was watching it was Stoner in South Africa in 2002 on a 250, and he had an absolute egg beater of a crash. I remember crash. that. You know, I think it was about eight seconds from when it started to when yeah, it ended. that was a horrible crash. You know, but I'll tell you what, I spent the rest of his career looking out for his results. Yeah. Mark's like that, Top Rack's like that, Verstappen and Formula One's like that. There's riders that captivate you. Mm. And you know, obviously this year was a special year because it was Rossi's last year. Mm. But this was also a time when we needed to have those other riders step up, make their mark. We did actually have that as well. Like th Five years ago, if you had said Rossi's retiring, you would have thought MotoGP's in, in trouble. Yeah. Now you look at it and you think, well, we've got Bagnaia, Martin, Mir, yeah. all these guys it's coming stacked, through. It's stacked, isn't it? It's stacked. And it's, it's that conveyor belt of the system's so good now in MotoGP that it's like there are no privateer teams. And even the, the let's say the third tier satellite teams are so good now the machinery is so close because of the way the rules are as a rookie you can come in and if you click with a motorcycle you're having a good weekend you can battle well inside that top 10 and that's what we've seen with all the rookies haven't we for the last few years the rookies come in and it'll be no different I don't think for next season with the rookies obviously enough we mentioned Rossi what's your big takeaway from not so much your time whenever you were a rider but the last seven years working in the paddock again uh, just amazing being in and around him you always feel nervous when you interview him because you're in a voice is going this is Valentino Rossi I'm talking to but what, what always surprised me with, with Rossi is and even though I've spent quite a bit of time in his company is how normal he is the man who should be the least normal the man who should have the biggest ego <laughs> who should be bored of talking to journalists, TV people, is the easiest person to talk to. When you get him, when it's been organized and it's done as it is in the paddock, if you get to sit down with Valentino, he gives you the best answers, he listens to the questions, and he's, he always asks you how you are, which is so rare. He's, he's, he was always fascinated with me, he kept saying, how are you getting on with the TV? Do you really like it though? What's it like? And what do you, so you do the commentary as well, and. Because, and when he used to ask me, he used to think, is he preparing for his next stage of what he's going to do? Is he going to do some TV work? Because obviously he can pick and choose what he wants to do. So, so obviously he's going to be missed. I'm, I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, I'm really sad now. The paddock won't be the same. Valentino has done so much for our sport, as you know, and he's had an incredible career. I'm not bothered that he didn't win, uh, didn't get 200 podiums. I'm not bothered that he didn't win 10 world championships. Do you know what? 199 podiums and nine world titles. The glass is half full, isn't it? You know? <laughs> I don't know anyone who wouldn't bite your, your hand off to, to have that sort of CV. It's one of those ones where, at the end of the day, what made it impressive, the numbers are good, but it's to keep that fire all yeah, the way through. Obviously enough, this year, it, it was clearly a year too long. Yeah. But it was also one of those situations where last year he could have won a couple of races. Yep. It's a bit like Chaz Davis and Superbikes. Wins his last race in Estoril last year. If he had walked away, you would have thought a big what if. There's no what if for Davis. There's no what if for no, Rossi. No. 
this is their time to walk away. And well, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but that was one of the massive issues with Troy Bayliss because he retired in, what year was that? 2007? Yeah, whatever. But he destroyed everybody in his last year and especially the last race, it was Portimao when he did the double there and no one could even lay a glove on him. And he retired because that's what he said he was going to do. He didn't really want to retire though. It was Kim and his wife were like, come on, we've been doing this too long now, traveling the world. And, and, and rightly so, let's move back home. And then... Troy struggled, he struggled and he would openly admit that he didn't it wasn't a happy retired person because he was that good when he retired and what worked out well for Troy in a weird sort of way was uh, I can't remember who got injured one of the Ducati riders and he replaced him didn't he and actually had a couple of difficult rounds even though Troy wasn't slow but he didn't he, he sort of weren't battling for the podium, was he? He did well in Phillip Island, went to Bury Ram, that and then it. it was tough. Yeah, that was and it. And then yeah. it was kind of right, now is the time. Because it is a young man's game. It's a young man's game. And what I loved about when Bayliss came back was his riding style looked, he, as the new school riding style evolves, as it does on it, like year by year, you saw Troy's old, proper old school, like me, you know, like leaning basically the wrong side of the bike. I remember watching that race at Phillip Island. It, it showed him coming over Luke Heights, and I was like, "Oh my God, that looks so wrong!" But I loved it, you know. So, so yeah, yeah. Weirdly, the fact that Troy retired on off the back of good results worked against him. So, with Rossi, obviously, the time's right, isn't it? But I still, weirdly, wouldn't. Could, I still could imagine him doing a wild card. You could, you, do you know what I mean? Because he's obviously still going to be fit as, still going to ride with all the lads, so he's still going to be sharp. He'll still be on the R ones in Mizano, won't he? He ain't going to go. Oh, I'm not doing that anymore. Just get him a few Pirellis, put him on Mizano wildcard and superbikes, put a hundred thousand people through the door. But nothing. I would, don't put anything against Ross. He, he he could still potentially do that. He's going to go racing cars. He's going to soon realise that that's well boring. And <laughs> I know he's great in cars and all that lot. But well, I tell you what, this is actually one of the things that. And we saw it as well, Brivio moving from MotoGP to Formula One. We always think that all these guys will translate what they can do. Rossi is a good car driver right now in GT3 at a, at a lower level than probably what he's going to end up racing at. But he's going to suddenly find out he's not Valentino Rossi anymore. No. He's, he's just the guy on that yellow number 46 Ferrari going around. And then that's whenever it gets harder and harder. And different for you, like, but when, when you went into TV, every rider that goes in to be a journalist can always rely on the people they worked with, the teams that they used to be with for getting their information at the start, but then pretty soon you have to put in the work. Yeah. And you know, Rossi and Cars, Brivio moving to Formula One, we all thought he'd be a great organizer. Looks like he could be washed up out of Formula One. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I think in our, in our little bubble, it's very easy to think everyone can translate out of us and, and they don't always. No, no. No, and that's why I genuinely, I could, I could see Rossi doing a wild card in MotoGP or Superbikes. I could. How cool would that be? I'd love that. Because he'll know, Rossi will know. He'll be, he'll be riding around Mizano on, the, on a, let's say, a standard R1. You can imagine how standard it's not. And uh, he'll know what lap times he's doing. And he can get whatever tyres he wants. So they could, they could throw him some uh, the race Pirellis. I imagine he'd be able to get a, a decent deal on the garage yeah. for the weekend. Do you reckon? Because it's one of those ones that we're we're obviously here in Birmingham this weekend. Just yesterday, Jack Miller was racing in the Aussie yeah. Superbike Championship. How cool was that? That's, if anyone who doesn't know Jack Miller, the fact that he raced that event basically sums him up. There's not many MotoGP riders that in their last MotoGP race that were on the podium would then risk going to do a national championship back at home. But Jack did it because he loves riding motorcycles. He's got no ego. And he thought, oh, that'd be a real fun weekend. 
actually he's, the bike he won was on wasn't like a factory bike or anything was he? he had standard electronics and all that lots and he was sort of up against it really because of that but he didn't care he just wanted to go entertain the fans riding motorcycles which he loves and I'll, like I say I, I don't know many riders that would do that it's one of those ones as well that you'd love to see more of that in future something like Daytona in February who doesn't want to go down to Florida for a week whenever we're in Europe it's cold all this kind of thing get yourself over there whether you're a Moto 2 rider Moto 3 rider that's used to training on a 600 and get yourself in there and mix it up a little bit because this current generation seems a little bit different to yeah. 10, 15 years ago where they were all very much regimentally MotoGP riders. Yeah. Now everyone seems to be quite keen to do a bit more, whether it was flat track you know, with the Super Prestige a few years mm. ago, all this kind of stuff. People were willing to put themselves out of their comfort zone a bit. Yeah, yeah it's changed a bit now, hasn't it? But that said, I guess Rossi had his race, was that yesterday, the, that 100 yeah. kilometer whatever race it is? So, I mean, a lot of people went and turned up there. I don't even know who won. Do you know who won? I didn't see who won, but I tell no. you what, it was some entry list. Yeah, I know. You I know. know. It's be pretty tough to turn them down for, for uh, getting on to the yeah. list. The problem is, it's one of those events. Like, if you manage to get an invite to go, you'd, be, you'd have to be so on it because literally there are no slow riders there. You don't want to turn up and there's like 60 people there and you don't want to be 60th fastest, do you? Well, but, I'll be but, honest, but, Todd, like, whenever I've turned up to do the rental carts, I'm always the slow one. But all you're always thinking is, there better be one guy that's slower than me. Traditionally, there has been, you know, but uh, you know, I've turned up with like Chris Tindall and Charlie Hescott at World Superbike events. And they shocks, those guys. I, I'm, I'm struggling with them. They're professional kart racers. Obviously enough for you as well, Audrey, like uh, you, know, you said at the top of this that uh, you've taken up golf for the last wee while. Important to have an outlet like that. We're obviously here in the NEC, Motorcycle Live this weekend. You've got your insurance company as well. That's what, five, six years into that? Four years. It's like, literally, it's like our birthday. And um, obviously, me and Neil McKenzie started it four years ago. We saw a gap in the market, really. We always, it's one of those conversations you have with your mates going, who do you insure with? Oh, bloody hell, I had a really bad experience. And so many people had that. And I said, imagine if we could start a motorcycle insurance company and actually try and look after people, give them a good experience so they recommend you to each other, you know, and so they don't leave. And imagine not putting people's policy price up just for the sake of it, because you can, and trying to get away with it. Imagine doing that. So that's basically what we, that was like the sort of foundations of, of why we started. And it's been a really interesting journey. Not as easy as I thought, like most things. And it's certainly not a get rich quick, but we've already, we're insuring thousands of people. We're starting to build the foundations for a real solid company that we're both really proud of. And we both had good careers in motorcycle racing. And we said, how cool would it be to actually genuinely start a business there's something you could stand back and your kids can get involved in and you know in, in years to come so that's where we're at obviously enough something like this it also goes to show when you finish your racing career you've got to have a career after it mm. tv work it's good work but you also need as many different eggs yeah. as you can in your basket and yeah and it's uh, you're a long time retired i retired at 36 and obviously when you're 36 you've raced all your life you feel like you're old you're an old man at 36 and I'm 48 now. You look back at I look at back at the 36 year old Neil. You're a young man, and you've got a I lot. I feel all right now as a 36 year old standing in front of you. You're a young man. You must be older than that. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Um, I've but, aged horrendously. Yeah, it's, it's a stress. 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 Stress, you know? stress. So, um, so you 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 have to. I think it's funny because when I first retired, I was doing a lot of track days, and people would come up to me going, "Why are you doing this?" And it, it, it used to be the question that made me laugh. I'd think, "Why am I doing this?" Bear in mind, we sat in Spain at the time on a beautiful trike. Why, why am I being paid to ride around in the sun in Spain 
What am I supposed to? I used to say, what am I supposed to do as a retired racer? Sit back at home in the Isle of Man doing what? Drinking coffee. You know what I mean? It's, you're a long time retired and you need something to get you out of bed in the morning. And both me and Neil McKenzie are very competitive. So we're busy with lots of things, but this was one with the insurance. It was one thing I, I was missing was competition in my life. I didn't want to race anymore. And we, we, we started this and it's competitive. The insurance world is competitive. So we're trying to be the best we can be at this and grow something so we feel successful. Obviously, I can't let you go, Hodgie, without saying that there was one of the times you were down in the south of Spain. You're being asked, what are you doing? And uh, Tito Rabat came up to you and said, you know, you're, you're actually quite fast for, yeah. for a commentator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Obviously, no idea who I was. But anyone who's met Tito, he, he didn't, if you said to Tito, what day, what day is it? He'd, he'd have to look at his phone, wouldn't he? He's, he's not the sharpest tool in the box. Well, I'll tell you what, it's been interesting to see how he's adapted to superbikes. It shows the challenge everyone has. Yeah. Ikerna goes next year and that's going to be interesting to see how he does. Yeah, he's been disappointing Tito really, hasn't he? But he's clearly, Tito just, I think he's just lost his confidence completely. The MotoGP experience near the end just banged it, bashed it out of him and he got on a superbike and I think he thought it was going to be easy and obviously it's not. So I'm really intrigued to see how the, the new boys on the Hondas go. As we know, it's not quite what people think. I think some people think that it's, well, it's a second class championship it's you know not quite the same level i tell you what as like we've said in this in this uh, podcast to beat jonathan ray or top rack you have got to well you've got to be mark marquez level <laughs> simple as that yeah you got to be going some thanks for joining us neil and uh, best luck for the rest of the week here my pleasure Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Not a bad interview there with uh, an insurance shill. I mean, um, Neil Hodgson. Um, <laughs> and I'd obviously enough for you, Hodgie's always a bit of an interesting one as well. Steve, I think uh, just remembering his racing days, um, you know, were you, there was a, I'm trying to recall, get some memory recollection here now. Um, I mean, he kind of crossed over with Carl Fogarty, of course, in World Superbike. And there was, you know, fans of, British riders, but then there was a moment where it seemed you were a Hodgson fan or you were a Fogarty fan, you were a James Hayden fan. Um, and of course, British Superbike as well, you're either, you know, a Chris Walker fan or you're rooting for Neil Hodgson. And some of their clashes, of course, can be found on YouTube and were fantastic. I have to admit, I did uh, at the time uh, favor Chris Walker's slightly more aggressive um, underdog approach. But, uh, you know, having sort of met and got to know Neil, then um, classy act. I always think it's quite interesting. You mentioned there about the crossover with Foggy. When you look at Hodgie's career, his first two teammates were John Kaczynski and Carl Fogarty. So a uh, <laughs> little, little bit different characters compared to Hodgie. And uh, I have to say, I was actually, I was a big fan of him whenever he was in BSB. I didn't really, I was too, probably a bit too young whenever he was in uh, World Superbikes at the start of that uh, period from like 97. And then on the, the Kawasaki, the Ducati, all that kind of time. But when he went back to BSB on the GSE bike, I was a big fan and he turned up onto the world stage then did a really good job as a, as a as as uh well on his return after BSB and 
you know, he was a great world champion. And when you look at what happens whenever he comes back to the World Superbike Paddock now, he's a good ambassador for the championship as well. Always keen to talk to anyone that's in the paddock, always keen to promote the championship as well. So he knows where his bread was buttered and uh, always makes sure that he's able to to do what he can to help the championship. Yeah, because after his first stint in World Superbike, it was, I don't know, I think a lot of people at that point, he had a bad year with Kawasaki in 98. I think a lot of people at that point were maybe writing him off and thinking, okay, he maybe isn't like a, a world championship level rider. That might be a bit harsh, but um, we've seen so many riders go back to BSB or go back to their national championships and just, uh, you know, think that they're going to set it on fire and, and clean up and it's not always the case. It's quite difficult, I think, to take that step back down to national level. But Neil, after a year of um, consolidation, I guess, um, you know, then won that championship again in 2000. And, and basically, that was the, the, the platform from which he could kind of relaunch his career again um, and make a real success of it. Um, and, you know, that takes, uh, I think, you know, humility and, uh, and, and kind of balls. So, yeah, fair play. Also, um, one of my favorite World Superbike memories, I think, is... Sugo 98 when it was that big showdown with uh, Fogarty and Slight and uh, <laughs> Slight felt that Hodgie was holding them up or, or, or just being a bit of a, I don't know what he thought, but uh, Slight kind of lost the head, but Hodgie gave as good as he got on the, the slowdown lap and basically gave it straight back to him. So big respect for that too. Yeah, because I think, Neil, I think if you were looking for a parallel with Hodgie in recent years, you're probably looking at someone like Scott Redding. Because Hodgie obviously came up in the Grand Prix paddock, he was a 125 rider onto 500s. And then went to World Superbikes. Actually did quite well initially in World Superbikes. But like you said, it kind of flamed out a little bit in that three-year stint. And then went back to the British Championship. Won the championship in his second year. Won a lot of races. Turned up as a wild card in 2000 as well at the British Rounds. And uh, was able to... I think he won two races. I think he was on the podium four or five times. He was always at the front of the field at Brands and Donington that year. And did really well, and then managed to turn that into a return to the world championship, where you know he was able to establish himself as a race winner again, and then eventually a world champion. And he was probably a bit too successful as a world champion because his win bonuses and his championship bonuses meant Ducati basically had to put him into MotoGP on a on a pretty crap Dantine Ducati, and it was it was always one of those things that you kind of wondered what would have happened if he had been able to stick around in worlds for a little bit longer. But, David, I thought one of the, the more interesting things chatting to Hodgie was about the injuries that riders get and the fact that riders, you know, the decision to end their career is usually taken out of their hands. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was probably one of one of the more insightful things that, that I got from just chatting to him in Birmingham. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's... Uh, I was chatting to someone else about this uh, the, the, the other night, the fact that, you know, riders... Um, at the end of their careers, they're quite often sort of in pain, and and just from all of the injuries that they've picked up over the uh, uh, over the years, um, and quite often it, it's a it's a decision that ha that is made for them. Uh, if you think of all the greats, there are very very few who've actually been able to walk away from the sport on their own terms. Uh, that I think is what marks Valentino Rossi out, as Hodgie was pointing out. You know, it it. it it marks him out as something a bit unique because he is able to choose the moment that he walks away. The same with Casey Stoner, being able to say, you know what, no, I've had enough, I'm stopping, I'm going to go and do something else. 
that's really quite remarkable. Usually people sort of carry on a little bit longer, either a little bit longer than their body is capable of, of, uh, of coping with, or they just get shunted aside. Yeah, obviously enough, Dave. I've had enough. I'm ready to walk away. <laughs> and we're going to bring an end to this week's pod. But add, on next week's show, we move from one world champion to another. You sat down with Fabio Quattraro for us. Yeah, that's right, Steve. I uh, managed a quick Zoom call. Uh, as soon as we came onto the interview, I said, oh, you know, like Fabio was sitting in a very nice airy space. And I asked where he was, and he said he was at his family home um, in France. And I said, oh, have you had much work to do today? He goes, you're my fourth interview of, of four. So I thought, <laughs> right, I'm at the tail end. Um, so I'm probably not going to get, you know, too much uh, in the way of uh, feedback, dumb questions. So uh, I had to make it short and swift. And uh, well, I just hope people will enjoy the pod. You did. You you got. Uh, I was uh, I was surprised. I I, I learned things. Um, you know, it was uh, the it was a different angle, and I really enjoyed it. So um, something to look forward to next week. Yeah. So we're going to finish up today's show. So a big thanks to Adam, David, Neil for joining us well, as usual on the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. And on next week's show, like I said, we'll have Adam's interview with Fabio Quattararo. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler. David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Damn, I wanted to ask people if they uh, cheered for Hodgson or Walker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, Ad, we can we well, can put that in at the very end if you want. Yeah, because JB always wants a, an outro, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, after an interview finishes, so. <laughs>